And today is increment 171 of our ongoing here a little, there a little, line upon line, increment upon increment study of Hebrews 2020, which has obviously gone deep into 2021 and will probably continue in 2022, <clears throat> and will be a, which will be a very fateful year for our nation and for the world. This, I think they call it Anna Mirabilis, a miraculous or extraordinary year. Uh, that's been Anum Miraculous, something like that. Miraba or Mirabilis, something like that. So I better pray because I can't even talk without prayer. So Father, we thank you for another opportunity to gaze into the perfect law of freedom, the perfect Torah, the fulfilled Torah of freedom, which is your word, which is expressed specifically in Hebrews, and we thank you for it. We pray that as we delve into the scriptures today, wherever the spirit takes us, that you will bless the going forth of your word so that it may cause the sharing of the joy of Jesus and the listeners. And I ask this in his name, amen. We took a little foray into Hebrews 12 and I reserve the right to do so in our study of Hebrews because it is a study of Hebrews. We are going verse by verse, but that we reserve the right to jump around a little bit, not only in Hebrews, but in, throughout the whole word of God to bring about a message that I think magnifies our Lord Jesus Christ so that his life can be manifested in your mortal body as a listener. Hebrews 12.1 refers to a contest, and we've studied this. The study today is going to be called A Joy Full of Glory. And again, like the anatomy of hope, this is going to be traveling throughout a lot of our teaching. But the word is agon in Hebrews 12.1, agon. And we've looked at it before. We've called it the agona sometimes, different inflection. And I've defined <clears throat> the present age as an agona because it's the clash of the evil age, which is on the way out, and the breaking in of the messianic age, which began with the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension and exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're in the agon, we're in the contest, we're in the struggle, we're in the war. So Hebrews 12.1 refers to a contest that we are to undertake, we as believers in Jesus Christ. Specifically, it's a race that is laid out in front of us, laid out in front of us. Now, I'm saying that because the word used for laid out in front of us is the same word that's used in Hebrews 6. You'll see these all in print in Hebrews 6 where it talks about the hope that is set before us. And then in Hebrews 12.1, we have the joy or the rather the agon that's set before us. And we're going to look at another one, the joy that was set before Jesus. So that word is kind of a key word, prokemi, or P-R-O-K-E-I-M-E-N-E-S in the noun form. So again, we are in a contest. The contest is a race that's set out before us. We see the course laid out in front of us, as it were. But the hope is also in front of us. 
The hope is in front of us as the agon is laid out before us. The hope is also in front of us. What's the hope? It's the finish line. That which Paul calls the mark of the prize of God's upward call in Christ Jesus in Philippians 3.14. What Paul calls the upward call, the PT calls a heavenly calling or a heavenward calling. So there's a correlation between Philippians 3.14 and 3.1. So my point is, there are several things laid out in front of us. There is the agon, the contest, the race. There is the hope, which is the finish line of the race. And there is, as we're going to see, the joy that was set before Jesus. And this is going to be fun because this involves a, well, a difficult passage to interpret, but not so much difficult that it can't be fun. Hebrews 12.2 uses this word again, pro, P-R-O-K-E-I-M-E-N, A to E-S, prokemenes, and again, I, I don't pronounce Greek correctly, so please have mercy on me, pardon me, forgive me, prokemenes, and or prokemenes, it's descriptive here of the joy that was <clears throat> set before Jesus, the joy that was set before Jesus. So we have the idea of the hope that is set before us in Hebrews 6.18. And here we have the joy that was set before Jesus. It is my contention that Jesus intends to share the joy that was set before him with you, with me with the poor in spirit whose kingdom whose to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs and i consider myself to be among the poor in spirit hebrews 12:2 uses the word prokemenes to be descriptive of the joy that was set before jesus jesus endured the cross in fact for the joy that was set before him now here's where things get fun some of you might say funky, but I'll say fun and funky. Things get fun and funky here because the Greek word translated as for, F-O-R, in the phrase for the joy that was set before him is anti, A-N-T-I, A-N-T-I. It comes right down to our language pretty much as meaning against. So if it, if it was going to be literal, we'd say for the joy that was or against the joy that was set before him. Against the joy that was set before him. So the Greek word translated for in the phrase for the joy that was set before him in Hebrews 12.2 is anti. Anti can mean instead of or in place of. Or it can mean for, as it is in a lot of translations, English translations, F-O-R, or in behalf of, in behalf of. Uh, sometimes you have this as kind of equal to huper when Jesus died for our sins. Sometimes anti is used, so it's not against our sins, Jesus died, but Jesus died in behalf of our sins in order to put them away. So the word can also have the sense of in behalf of. 
So the interpreter has got a conundrum here in front of him or her, but it's a fun conundrum. Watch how this works. So does Hebrews 12.2 mean that Jesus endured the cross instead of the joy set before him? Meaning the joy of heaven that was before him in his glorious state before his incarnation. So we would have to, if that was the case, instead of the joy, we'd have to say that Jesus had before him the unspeakable splendors of heaven, but that's not just heaven. He had before him the beatific vision of his father, the uninterrupted beatific vision of his father that involved no suffering but only total and indescribable joy. Did he, instead of that joy, endure the cross where he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was he then stripped of the beatific vision when he endured the cross? Well, uh, that's a question. Remember how valuable they are in a pure desire to know. So does, here's the question. The question itself is intriguing. Does Hebrews 12.2 mean that Jesus endured the cross instead of the joy set before him? Meaning the joy of heaven that was before him in his glorious state before his incarnation? That which Jesus himself in prayer to the Father called, quote, the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The glory that I had with you before the world existed. John 17, 5. Was this joy or was this the hope or the, let's say, the joy-filled glory or the glory-filled joy of Jesus that he endured the cross instead of? Well, there's some pretty hefty weight behind an affirmative to that. And so, again, John 17, 5, he speaks of the glory that he had with the Father before the world existed. Or, does the joy that was set before him mean, with a forward view to the joy that lay before him in the days of his flesh, the joy that was to be experienced, listen carefully, the joy that was to be experienced not only by himself, but by all human beings and all of creation. Jesus, in the days of his flesh, did he see before him a joy that is his joy, but that is his joy shared by all of creation in the eschatological vision of God being all in all? Pretty hefty weight behind that answer, too. A strong argument exists for this interpretation, especially when we add Philippians 2, 6 through 11 into the mix. There, Paul teaches us that Christ did not consider the prerogatives of his divinity to be a treasure to be grasped, but that he emptied himself, took on the likeness of frail humanity, even took the form of a slave to be obedient to the extent of the death of the cross. So he did so precisely because he did not wish to hoard, H-O-A-R-D, hoard the privilege of the beatific vision, but desired this joy for all human 
beings. The joy that was set before him, therefore, was the joy of others. He couldn't be happy. As glorious as the beatific vision was, he did not treasure it at the cost of others not having it. But the cost of others having it was his endurance of the cross. And we've been bought with a price. He didn't wish to hoard the privilege of the beatific vision, but desired this joy for all human beings. The joy that was set before him was the joy of others. His own joy consisted in sharing of his joy. As Romans 15, 3 and 4 says, Messiah did not please himself. Messiah didn't please himself. His joy wasn't in being happy in himself. The joy that was set before him, therefore, in Hebrews 12, 2, is the joy of others that he anticipated. His own joy consisted in the sharing of his joy. How many times have you been somewhere, seen some scene of nature or some glorious picture of a sunset or you were at some happy place like a county fair or at a movie that was just wonderful and you said, man, I wish she was with me. Man, I wish my kids were with me. Man, I wish my mom and dad were here to see this. Because your joy isn't complete. In fact, there's a little bit of a nagging thing there. Like, ah, oh, this is so beautiful, but not entirely joyous because I can't share it. And I can't even take a picture of it that will do justice to it. Well, that's the kind of joy that Jesus wants. The joy that is in sharing his joy. His joy is in sharing his joy. I've spoken these things to you, he said in John 15, 11, so that my joy will be in you. If I didn't have joy, speaking of myself, I wouldn't be preaching. I have a certain joy that doesn't have anything to do really with human happiness and the things that make me happy as a man or as a human being. The hobbies, the stimulations, the relationships that make us humanly happy prosperity that makes us happy or whatever it is I have a joy that is in me since my confrontation with our Lord Jesus Christ since I met him if you want to say it that way and that joy is in me and I wish to share that joy if I didn't have that joy I wouldn't be a preacher because a preacher is supposed to be a helper of your joy and so I can slightly identify with Jesus when he said, I've spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you. And John, in First John, said, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, and we want you to come into that fellowship because there is the completeness of joy, in First John 1, 3 to 4. So, and as the scripture says, when they exegeted the scripture, when they expounded upon the scripture and they translated it and gave the sense in Nehemiah 8, 8 through 10, when the people came back to the restored temple around 516 BC, the people went out rejoicing because they understood the word and the sense that God wanted to bring through the word. So they went out and the joy of the Lord became their strength. 
And so the Lord wants our joy, his joy to be our joy. And in his joy, we find strength. We find hope. We find the connection of hope and joy. The joy that was set before Jesus was the joy of others. His own joy consisted in the sharing of his joy, which is complete joy with all of creation. Now, I want you to turn to Isaiah 55. 12. I forgot all about this, but I have it right in front of me here. Isaiah 55, 12 to 13. There is that passage which we like to call Deutero-Isaiah, the second Isaiah. There's an identifiable three books in the one book called Isaiah. The first is the 39 chapters of the first 39 chapters called first Isaiah. Then there is 40 to 55 chapters, 40 to 55 called Deutero-Isaiah. Then there's Trito-Isaiah from 56 to 66 of Isaiah. The closing verses of Deutero-Isaiah are found in Isaiah 55, 12, and 13. And in that passage, we have a polysyndeton, which is the use of seven ecstatic ands of a prophetic vision. Isaiah had, second Isaiah had a prophetic vision of the transfiguration of the universe, the transfiguration of all the universe. And we're about to bring about a doctrine in its birthing stages right now, which I'm going to call the doctrine of, a, of human being as micro-universe, the doctrine of man as microcosm, we could call it, coming up. And I don't think we're going to begin it in this increment because there's too much to tackle. But in the last two verses, Isaiah does the same thing John does with his polysyndeton use of many ecstatic ands in his vision report in Revelation. Here are his seven ecstatic ands, and he says, For you will come out with gladness and be brought or, and be taught with joy. And the mountains and hills will leap up to welcome you with happiness. There's all of creation sharing in the joy of Jesus Christ. And all the trees of the field will applaud with their branches. And instead of the briar, a cypress will come up. And instead of the nettle or thorn, shall come up a myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for an everlasting sign, semion aeonion. And it, the transformed world, will not be eclipsed. That means once the world is transfigured and comprised of Jesus and his joy, there will be no possibility for a future incursion of evil or of misery of sadness or suffering again. The new creation will not be eclipsed. That's the Septuagint version of it. It will be a sign aeonion forever. So that vision is of the eternized new creation future world made for complete joy in which all of creation welcomes the apocalypse of the sons of God as we've seen in Romans 8 19 to 21 and shares in the glorious freedom of the children of God that Jesus wishes to share his joy with us and if you're going to picture Jesus in your mind's eye and see Jesus and you see him as wanting to share his joy with you. So if Jesus has any grief, it's because of the blockages in sharing his joy with us. And that means he co-suffers with us in our griefs 
and our sorrows. And in those kind of sorrows for which there's no sympathy card that's ever been written or can be written, unspeakable sorrows. He co-suffers with us, and he desires to replace those unspeakable sorrows, those secret griefs, with an indescribable joy and all filled up with glory. That Jesus wishes to share his joy with us and for our joy to be complete joy is apparent from his words to his disciples in the upper room, which I will say again, quote, I've spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. What does Jesus Christ want for us? Complete joy. What's complete joy? His joy. Why is his joy complete? Because it is the joy of the beatific vision of seeing his father in his essence. Complete joy comes ultimately with the beatific vision when we see him as he is in his essential divinity and so see the father. That is the joy that was before him. Not just his happiness, but ours. Ours too. And that of all humanity and all of creation. So it's easy to lean in any direction. We've asked, does this mean instead of the joy that was before him, the joy of his glory that he had with his father before the foundation of the universe, before the creation of the world, or is it the joy that he had before him in the days of his flesh, which is the sharing of the joy of his own joy with all of creation? And is that why he endured the cross? It's easy to lean in any direction on these two things. And I wouldn't fault somebody for going either way on this or one way or the other. It's easy to lean in any direction because it's certainly true that Jesus chose to endure reproach and even unspeakable suffering instead of clinging to the indescribable pleasures of heaven in his glorious preexistent state with the Father. But it is also equally true that Jesus had set before him an eschatological joy, a vision of God being all in all that would be shared by all of humanity and all of creation as a result of his endurance of the cross. In fact, in the same prayer to the Father, which we cited in John 17, 5, which some have called, maybe rightly so, Jesus' high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed for his disciples, saying, quote, that they may have my joy completed in them. John 17, 13. When you see Jesus with these 12 guys, uh, and you see Jesus with Mary Magdalene, you see Jesus with the disciples like Lazarus and Mary and Martha and his own mother, you see Jesus with these disciples, and you sometimes we forget that his whole purpose is for them to share his joy that, and their joy to be completed and his joy to be completed in them. And so we have to picture Jesus in a different way than we have before when he teaches, when he remonstrates or rebukes or corrects, when he 
pokes fun at his disciples, whatever it is, it's because he wants their joy to be completed and for his joy to be in them. And then he says, that's John 17, 13, but listen to what he says after that. He says, and for the world, he says, so the world may believe that you sent me. The world may believe that you sent me. And when the world believes that God the Father sent the Son, then what's going to happen? They will have the joy. The world will have the joy and peace in believing. Romans 15, 13. So that the world may realize, he says, that you have sent me. John 17, 23. So there's a lot to be said from that so-called high priestly prayer. The main point for us, though, in interpreting Hebrews 12.2 is that Jesus certainly chose to endure the cross rather than to go on experiencing the joy of the beatific vision of his Father without suffering. On the other hand, Jesus also saw before him that the joy and the glory that he had with the Father before the world was created could be a joy and a glory shared not only by his disciples, but by the world itself and all of its inhabitants. Such will be future world. So here's what I do. Is it? Either A or B, or is it C, both? You take one of those multiple choice tests and you say, oh man, A, B, C, D, it could go for all of them, and then you're happy to see E, all the above, and you go, eh, it's all the above. Well, it is, in one sense, I think we can say it's all the above. Why not? I mean, if I say one or the other and I stand before the Lord in the judgment seat and say, well, I thought you meant the joy that was before you before the foundation of the world that you wanted to share with all creation. Is the Lord going to say, no, you got it wrong, you idiot, you heretic, go to hell? I don't think so. Or if I say, well, I thought it meant the joy that was set before you, Lord, in the days of your flesh, which you saw ahead of you, which you wanted to share with all creation, he's not going to say, no, you idiot, you heretic. Street, that's two strikes. You're on one more strike, and you're on your way to Hades. No, I don't think that's going to happen. So perhaps in addition to the choice of A... Jesus endured the cross instead of the joy that was set before him in his pre-existent state with the Father. Or choice B, Jesus chose to endure the cross because of the joy that was in front of him in the days of his flesh, a joy that he would share especially with his disciples, but also with the world. There's a third option. Jesus Let's call it C. Jesus chose to endure the cross instead of the joy that was set before him in his preexistent state with the Father before the world was created 
And Jesus chose to endure the cross because of the joy that was in front of him in the days of his flesh, a joy that he would share, especially with his disciples, but also with the world. An equally weighty argument can be presented for either A or B, so I'm content, at least for now, to go with C. This is just our first foray into this. We're going to be hitting it again, Lord willing, if he gives us time and space and life and breath and historical opportunity. So I'm going with C. The impact of the cross which Jesus endured is universally and eternally salvific, bringing glorious joy to all of humanity and all of creation over the course of all times, epochs, eras, and generations. You say, well, that's a cheap way out. Instead of becoming a Democrat or Republican, you became an independent. You don't have the courage of your convictions or whatever. You can, that, that's accusations people make. But, okay, I'm going to lean one way or another right now. Let me lean. At this point in my recollection or reflection on the subject, the scales in my mind are tipping a little more on the B side. Lots of times when the Beatles did records, they did an A side and a B side. And the B side was kind of like ignored. But there's B-sides like Old Brown Shoe, which I love. That's a great song. It's an uplifting song. It's kind of a nonsensical song, but a fun song. Old Brown Shoe. It's a B-side. I'm leaning toward the B-side here. And so I'm tipping slightly that way. So that's our first foray into Hebrews 12. Now, I want to introduce something, Norton style. And you, I'll let you have to... Uh, text Emery to explain what that means, or he will explain it someday from the pulpit, the Norton style. I'm beginning a doctrine of human being as microcosm, and this is just going to be a, a, a slight introduction because the message, well, we could use a little more time in this one. In their meeting on the mountain, and again, our topic is glory-filled joy. In their meeting on the mountain, God instructed Moses how to construct the earthly tabernacle in the desert. He showed Moses the blueprint, as it were, and warned Moses to build the tent exactly according to its specifications. God gave him the specs. We could say, by analogy, the blueprint on the mountain. Exodus 25:40, which happens to be quoted in Hebrews 8, 5b. In Exodus 40:33a, the last stage of the construction was recounted. It says he set up Moses set up the courtyard surrounding the tent and the altar, speaking of the tabernacle in the wilderness or the desert, the wilderness tabernacle as it's often called. Then in Exodus 40:33b, Moses finished all the works. Some translations say Moses finished the work, the Septuagint said and Moses finished all the works. We could have fun with that one and say Moses finished work and Jesus finished work. Which one is the most significant? Well, we'll we could guess at that, I guess. But Moses finished all the works, it says in 4033b of Exodus. When the desert tabernacle was completed, the scripture declares... Now note this well, Exodus 40, 34, the scriptures declare the cloud covered the tent 
of meeting. That's the Shekinah glory cloud. And the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. That's Isaiah, or that's Exodus, rather, 40, 34. Consequently, and here's the kicker, Moses couldn't enter the tent of meeting because the, the cloud rested on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Exodus 40, 35. The glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle after its completion may be compared to the glory of Yahweh, the God of Israel, filling the temple of Solomon after its dedication. Let me say that again. The glory of the Lord filling the desert tabernacle after its completion may be compared to the glory of Yahweh filling the temple of Solomon after its dedication. So in 1 Kings, which is Septuagint 3 reigns, 8.10, it says that when the priests went out of the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord. The priests went out. Who? The Levitical priests. The priests under Aaron. They went out of the tabernacle. They left. Hebrews is about the Levitical priests leaving. Why? Because the glory of the Lord filled the tent. They couldn't come in anymore. Get the point? Get the hint? So again, 1 Kings 3 reigns, 8.10. And the priests went out of the holy place. The cloud filled the house of the Lord. In 8.11, what does it say? 1 Kings 8.11, or three reigns, 8.11. And the priests could not stand to minister from before the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house. The glory of the Lord filled the house. How can this possibly work into a doctrine or the doctrine of human being as microcosm? You'll find out in future increments, perhaps. But another thing we want to consider. Now, the word in the Greek actually means from before the cloud, actually means the face of, in the cloud, which is God's face in the cloud. This, the priest couldn't minister before the face in the cloud. They couldn't stand to minister that comes into hebrews 10 12 every priest stands daily ministering and offering the same sacrifices that can't take away sin this person jesus this priest this great archpriest after the order of melchizedek after offering one sacrifice forever and for all humanity and all creation sat down his glory fills the tabernacle. There ain't no room for Moses' law. There ain't no room for Levitical priesthood. Moses can't enter. The priests got to leave. That doesn't mean that there is not significance in Moses or in Moses' law as it's reiterated and manifested in Christ and in believers' spiritual lives, as we know from Romans 13, 8 through 10, etc. But when your joy is full, 
And when your joy is full of glory and the Holy Spirit fills you and fills you up with all the fullness of God, there's no room for that which the Levitical priests represented. Animal sacrifices, things we do to secure God's favor, all that stuff. So bear this in mind along with Paul's double declaration in 1 Corinthians 3.16. You plural, are God's temple. You are God's temple. And God's spirit dwells in you, plural. And then in 1 Corinthians 16, 6.19, singular, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. When a person or persons is said to be filled with the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, here happens to be pimplemi, not plerao as it is elsewhere. Pimplemi. Pimplemi is the word for filling of the Spirit used by Luke almost exclusively for the filling of the Spirit. So when a person or persons, when a single individual human being or a group of human beings is said to be pimplemi, P-I-M-P-L, long E-M-I, with the Spirit in Luke 1.15, Luke 1.41, Luke 1.67, like Mary and Elizabeth and Zacharias and all the people in the upper room or like the Gentiles or like Paul in Acts 2.4, Acts 4.8, Acts 4.31, The same word, pimplemi, for filled with the Spirit, is used in Exodus 40.34 and 40.35. And pimplemi is used in 1 Kings 8.10 and 8.11. And so it could be said that they as a temple were filled with the glory of the Lord when they were filled with the Spirit. Now, if we take this to Hebrews, when the saint is filled with the Spirit, there is no need for the Levitical priests to stand and minister for them because the glory of the Lord has filled the house. Now, this is one more step and then we'll close. The word house is used. The house was filled twice Again, in our passage, 1 Kings, or 3 Reigns, 8, 10, and 11. Paul uses the Greek word for house. It's oikia, O-I-K-I-A. Another form or inflection is oikos. There's a kind of yogurt called oikos, I guess, or oikos. So the house is used twice in 1 Kings 8, 10, and 11. It's used to describe, Paul uses the Greek word to describe our earthly body, which he also calls a tent, skleros, or skenos, rather, skenos. And he uses the same term, oikia, for our heavenly body, which is an everlasting house in the heavens, with an obvious reference to the two tents that are described in Hebrews 8. There's the earthly man-made tent and the heavenly tent that's not made with human hands and is not of this creation, Hebrews 9.11. So there's an intriguing thought here. The body that you and I are going to have eternal in the heavens or everlasting in the heavens is not of this creation. 
not of this creation. It's a spiritual body. So what do you make of that? Who knows? Follow the line of inquiry. So we are going to begin to build, speaking of a house, we're going to begin to build these passages that we've looked at so far in increment 171 into a doctrine. Doctrines is one of the nine theological functional specialties discussed by Lonergan and Doran. The doctrine that we're going to build is the doctrine of human being as microcosm or a man or a woman as a micro-universe. The universe itself is a house. Your body is a house. The universe is a house. You are a micro-universe. In Isaiah 66.1, which is the closing chapter of Trito, Isaiah, what does God say? He says, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house, oikos, that you will build for me? Now, when the house of an individual human being, our body, is filled with the glory of the Lord, this is a micro-universe. It's analogous to the glory of the Lord filling the universe, which will happen one day in the day of God, when God is all and in all. Now, in Moltmann's book, I haven't read this yet, only a few pages of it. I'm intrigued by it. Moltmann's book called God in Creation, he wrote this, quote, according to the Greek derivation, it's Greek derivation, the word ecology, you hear a lot about that lately, or environmentalism, etc. The word ecology, ecology, derives from the word oikos. So according to its Greek derivation, the word ecology means the doctrine of the house. Oikos. See, eko, oikos. Logos, oikos plus logos, the doctrine of the house. Slightly later, Moltmann added this. The divine secret of creation is the Shekinah, God's indwelling. And the purpose of the Shekinah is to make the whole creation the house of God. One more question. Are you intrigued? Good. Then we'll follow this doctrine up, if not in the next increment, certainly in increments to follow. Father, we thank you for your kindness, for your providential grace, for your care, and even for your preference of those who are poor in spirit. And we thank you as those who are poor in spirit that ours is the kingdom of heaven. And we thank you even more that your son, Jesus Christ, intends to share his joy with us for his joy is the beatific vision of you, Father. We look forward to this with a joy that is filled with glory. Amen.